Hey everybody, this is Charles Hain. Welcome to the No Film School podcast for the week of March 25th, 2021. I'm here with Editor-in-Chief of No Film School, George Edelman. Hello. And No Film School writer, Michelle De La Tour. Hi everyone. And this week we're going to be talking about the Zack Snyder cut of Justice League. We're going to be talking about the Oscar nominations, which are almost a week old at this point, but we recorded last week right before they came out. So we can still get a little juice out of it. Also, who's to say you can't talk about something for more than a week? Then we've got a fun new audio plugin in tech news and a really fun Ask No Film School about mounting video monitors to your body. This week on the No Film School podcast. All right. So the very controversial for so many reasons, for content reasons, for formatting reasons. I saw so many memes about the fact that it was reformatted to 4.3. Uh. <laughs> Zach, Zack Snyder's Justice League has officially dropped. We say dropped on the internet, right? It's not like premiering in a movie theater. It's just dropping yeah. on, on streamers. That's, it it that's is officially fine. dropped on HBO Max. There's a complicated backstory where... Zack Snyder had to leave mid-production because of a family tragedy, which is very sad. Judd Apatow, uh, not Judd Apatow, Joss Whedon took over. Joss Whedon apparently was a total asshole, and there were all sorts of lawsuits about what a dick he was. And then, you know, the film by many fans was not felt to reflect what Zack Snyder intended, and there was long discussion of a, of a Zack Snyder cut. And then HBO Max put in $75 million to shoot a whole bunch more footage to make the Zack Snyder cut of Justice League come out four years later. This is an interesting story because it is different from a lot of director's cut stories. A lot of director's cut stories are 10 years later. I'm grateful the studio gave me access to the archive to rescan the negative and recut. It is very rare. In fact, I can't think of an example where someone's like four years later, I got an extra $75 million to shoot additional footage to make an alternate movie. Like it is, is there another example that I'm missing where somebody got that? I don't know, but what I do know is that in the history of film, there have been many, many, many directors cuts and extended editions and versions that were revisited. We've talked about some of them here before, and most of our audience I'm sure is familiar with many of them. it is not unheard of, obviously, for there to be something that prevents the original vision to be completed by the person who had it. And obviously, there are many instances where somebody could go back and try and piece things together. I mean, famously, Orson Welles a number of times. Uh, we even talked to, I talked to Walter Murch about going back and, and recutting and working on touch of evil. Um, there are the Magnificent Ambersons with him as well. I think he's one of the early versions, early famous versions, but Blade Runner famously for anybody, me or Charles's age. Um, and so much in between. It's such a common story, but this one does stand apart uh, because yeah, he was given basically a massive feature film budget <laughs> to make more of it, his version of it. And it is an interesting thing like, will this happen more often? Will we get Chris Nolan saying, actually, I want to shoot a whole different ending to Dark Dark Knight Rises 15 years later because I've rethought it and I want to go a new direction. You, you know, I mean, it is a very complicated 
sort of relationship between the artist and the work when you remove the theatrical premiere and when you open up the idea of shooting original additional footage it is a it's vastly different so um full disclosure wasn't able to finish it have a two-year-old get very sleepy um very easily don't have four hours with a two-year-old where i can watch the whole thing but universally in my social media of the people in my life, everyone I know seems to have really enjoyed the new cut more than the last cut. I do not understand why people hate on Zack Snyder so much. I genuinely enjoyed his Dawn of the Dead. I thought it was solid. I also am a, like I wanted to get into movies originally to make Watchmen when I was in high school. And I don't hate his Watchmen cut like everyone else does. I don't understand why they're so mad about it. I think people like to hate Zack Snyder for some reason that does not make sense to me. I'll also disclose, and then Michelle, I know Michelle <laughs> has actually watched both, right? Um, but I, so I, I have watched the new one. I watched the Snyder Cut. I did it. I made it through. Well done. I, <laughs> I not a big comic book movie fan in general. I have seen many of them, though, and I did not see the original Justice League. So I had to do some research on what changed, which was really interesting to me. I also actually really think highly of him from a visual standpoint. I find that even when he's not, like a lot of the movies he's directed, this one included, the material is just not great in my opinion, but he's visually so committed to the bit that he does that his sequences really work for me. And I think he's a great comic book movie director choice because I think he's really, his camera is like balletic. I think his action sequences are visually compelling. And I think his approach, like to me, the thing that felt the weakest about this, I mean, obviously there were uh, some some ca- major casting problems, major script problems, but all that aside, I think it it mimicked some of what Marvel does too much sometimes, which I don't really like. There were just some straight up like, this is just an Avengers scene, but not as good. And I don't really love what it was in the first place personally. But all my my personal takes aside, I think filmmakers, uh, he is just, he really doesn't, he's earnest. He's not tongue in cheek. And sometimes it gets a little silly and you might laugh, but I think his earnest approach to how dramatic he is with his camera, like from Dawn of the Dead to the 300 to, and and here just to tack on real quick, Charles, before Michelle, um, I think that Warner Brothers uh, is known to have some really tight release times. They don't have, I think, the same war chest that Disney does for like, they, it's like they set these release dates. They, they have to make them. I'm not, gonna get we can get into the whys and ifs that's really true but and that puts a lot of pressure on finishing something and delivering something and i think that some of the the flaws in some of these dc comic book movies have to do with some of that some of the flaws so anyway on to you michelle first off uh well done on on watching the snyder cut it is uh endeavor I, it's a beast. I'm not sure. I think I knew what the runtime was, but it didn't click in my head until I was watching. And you know, the timeline at the bottom, it has like how long you've watched. And I misread it. I thought it was how much, like when it said two and a half hours at the bottom, I thought that was the total runtime and not the amount of time that I had left. And that was quite a surprise. So it's quite long. <laughs> don't 
don't kid yourself. It's if half not, a miniseries. <laughs> it's basically a miniseries. And it even has parts, so it could have been released in parts. My first input, if you will, is I feel like I keep reading that this is the, quote, Snyder Cut that Snyder would have released in 2017. And I would argue that I don't know if this is, I don't think this is at all um, what would have been released for so many reasons. It's a, it's a post Whedon, post tragedy, post HBO Max Snyder Cut. This would, I don't think that he would be able to release a four, I could be wrong, a four hour epic in a theater in 2017. I, I don't You're think it's the same. Right. I think I that, that there are many changes and there are changes that are subtle. There, some people have pointed them out in, in terms of like very subtle and different like storyline changes that I think are in there now. For example, there's a billboard. I don't know if you guys saw that. There's a billboard in the city at some point and the, and the message is you are not alone. And a lot of people have guessed that that's something that Snyder put in in reference to his daughter like there are these little things that have been put in like along the way because of post years of reflection on it. And I, and I just don't think that it, not, I mean, content aside, it was just the runtime. I'm not sure how many people would be like, yes, four hours with intermission um, in a theater. Let's do it. So I, I don't know if it'd be the same. I do think it's a really interesting experiment. If anyone ever wants to, you know, ever play with this idea of, same footage, different story concept of how do you edit something together? Because I started watching the Josh Sweden version the same evening. Don't do this. Same evening after watching this, <laughs> after watching the Snyder Cut. Oh, I, for a minute, I thought you were, you said you meant side by side, like you had two TVs no. set up. Well, I, so the four by three setup does allow you, I will say to have it. I had it on the side of my screen as I was like doing some work. So I will say the four by three at least is helpful in the arrangement of your browser windows <laughs> <laughs> because you're like, oh, I'm not cutting anything off because it's not you know, in a, in a letterbox or other format. So the four by three is, is, is makes it easier to have on the side of the screen. No, I tried watching the Josh Whedon version right after. And some of the scenes, this isn't giving anything away. Some of the scenes that feel pivotal in the storyline are like thrown in the credits, the opening. And I was like, Oh, I get what this is going to do. I don't know if I can sit through this knowing that they work in a different order in the other one. And so I think it's a really interesting experiment if anyone kind of wants to dive in in, ter- in terms of like, where do we put content scene-wise and what do we choose and, and where does it go and how does that impact what we're doing? Um, could be interesting discussion if you're, if you know, if you and like Charles and I are talking to people who are interested in filmmaking, like where do you put things? Does it get lost in something like in the opening? Uh, one example, this isn't giving anything away, is the... Amy Adams, who plays Lois Lane, there's like she's in a bedroom and and Superman is gone. That's also not giving anything away. And it's a scene in the Josh Whedon version that's like thrown in the opening credits. Whereas in the Snyder Cut, it's a longer moment. And so what I appreciated very much, I think, about the Snyder Cut is that he lets those things play out. And yeah, you have a four hour runtime, so you can let those things play out. But then there's some payoff there that we don't have. It, like, it just feels like it's thrown together in the other version. So it's a nice experiment if you ever really want to dive in of like which scenes stayed, which scenes got drawn out with a purpose. So we're not, it's not just behind text. <laughs> and that's why I, I tried. I couldn't, I don't know if I could do it. I was skipping around a little bit to see what had changed. It's, it's interesting to do the comparison. 
you know, this is something I fixate on with these kinds of movies immediately. And I, I'll ask both of you what you think about it. There's a couple points on what this movie is and what makes movies good or not of this variety or any variety. When you're making a superhero movie or a movie of this nature, villains have to be at least as important as heroes for the drama to work, in my opinion. I mean, Darth Vader is is a classic example, but uh, Jack Nicholson was an excellent foil in in the '89 Batman. I think you could make a case Gene Hackman in the in the original the Richard Donner Superman. I think obviously Heath Ledger's Joker. So I think villains become really important when you're dealing in these kind of big, broad strokes superheroes things. The villains in this movie feel strange on many levels <laughs> and I'm not sure like like the main main one just as I, I know that DC and Marvel have independently pre-existing very similar villains but the, he just seems like another version of the guy in the Avengers movies and the other bad guy changed a lot from the Joss Whedon cut to the Snyder cut in look and design and I could never really figure out what he was or what he was up to or why where he came from. Like, I mean, his motivation is obvious and, and similar again. It's like we the, the MacGuffins in these movies, my God, it's like collect X amount of powerful force objects to destroy life. I, I just like, I don't get why this is a good like MacGuffin. And I don't get why so much time is spent on these kinds of like, got to collect those them boxes, circles, mother, mother power boxes. stones, <laughs> like what the hell? Like, like, I don't care if that's what was in the original thing. That's not the other thing about MacGuffins. The idea of them originally is that with Hitchcock, at least who coined it. And I think none of this generation of filmmakers seems to understand it. So I, I, I mean, I just don't. The idea was that it was something that the audience would end up not caring about or overlooking. That's the point, is that it's not emphasized or stressed. It's de-emphasized. It's, it's what's motivating the action, but the audience is kind of like, well, I care about the people. What, what's happening to the people becomes more important than what's in the briefcase that Cary Grant is trying to get or that like the MacGuffin is driving the plot, but it's kind of like a secret driving the plot. I think Indiana Jones is where it began to bleed into like, there's actually a lot of discussion about the power of this MacGuffin. And I think that this generation of filmmakers raised on Spielberg and Amblin, et cetera, maybe just took that to heart. And now the MacGuffin is just so important and stressed in the script, but it's just so dumb. I'm sorry, it is. And like, there's there's no getting around like magic boxes, mother boxes, I think they're called in this. Like, I, like, I just, it's so not um, clever. It's so um, obtuse. But I think that those are just issues for me um, when it comes to like, just taking the whole thing seriously from a story standpoint. Like, I think you need to get creative and I think you need to find more human, like you need to bury that stuff a little bit and and let the audience sink into the people or the characters. So I'm curious what you guys think about that stuff. Like the other thing that's so in the, in the weeds though, Charles of the screenplay, you might not have as much of a take on having not seen it. Well, I mean, I do have a take on the MacGuffinization, which is the same take I have on the Joseph Campbellization hero's journey everyone would like to find a formula for what is going to work. And so in the last 20 years, like we're getting 
our blockbusters are more and more and more similar to each other. Um, you know, if you look at some of the most successful movies of the 50s and 60s, when there were screenwriting manuals, but they weren't like hit books that crossed over into the world and it wasn't, you know, like there's not like a driving MacGuffin of Lawrence of Arabia, right? Like there are a bunch of goals. Exactly. Like Lawrence definitely wants to, um, you know, Lawrence wants to fight the Turks off uh, and get the Turks out of Arabia. But like there's not a, a special pistol that Lawrence needs to find that is going to unlock, you know, there's not. Like the the goal of a MacGuffin was always this like it gives me just enough tension that I get to do all these other fun things and spend time with these characters. And like it's meant to be small. And what happens for me with some of these superhero comic book movies is the ones I tend to enjoy most are the ones with the lowest stakes. Like I enjoy the Iron Man movies because the stakes are never the world is going to explode if we don't find these toys you know, it's, it's, it's a battle and there's a bad guy and it's Jeff Bridges. Who's fun, but like it, the stakes stay within reasonable realms and stay grounded in something that doesn't break my connection to it. You know, like Chernobyl, the world could potentially end, but the world really could have potentially ended. And that makes for great stakes. And you know, there's a MacGuffin in Chernobyl. Can they find a robot that's capable of getting the um, graphite off the roof? Like that's a MacGuffin. But you're so invested in the characters and the performances that it it stays engaging. Whereas we've entered this weird phase with blockbusters and it's been coming for a while where like everyone has to sort of conform to these beats of the hero's journey. I knew a screenwriter in L.A. who was like, oh, yeah, like I start with page 30, 60 and 90 because I know that readers are going to read 30, 60 and 90 and I work out from there. And I believe any script you should be able to just flip to 30, 60 and 90. And if those pages are right. Like the script will sell, even if the rest of it. And I was like, really? Like the beats are so structured for you that it doesn't matter like the characters or like anything else. It's just become this very structured thing. And I get our desire for structure, but I also like toying with that. Yeah, that's my ramble about MacGuffins. Hitchcock did not take them too seriously. What we're, what we're wrestling against is, I don't know how much we can change MacGuffins when it's tethered to the an actual universe, you know, or of comic books and things. Like, the mother boxes, from what I understand, are coming from a story that's already been written. And so, yeah. you know, we in this case, particularly because fans are what part of what made this happen, you know, how much can you walk away from or step away from I see what you're saying from. it's a good point the stories that are that are there because every time you do that every and this is what Marvel and DC filmmakers and producers are learning is like how much can we stray from the story that people have memorized when they come into this film so I think that in this case and probably in the Marvel case and really in any of the universes that we're talking about so really Star Wars, Marvel, you know, DC, when there's something in canon, and I use that word with a laugh because I think actually this they said that the Snyder Cut won't be part of the DC canon, question mark. It's a long story. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, when you have a story that you're that you're adapting that people have memorized and come in and, and are tethered to, like how much can you change the MacGuffin? It's like, right, I mean, I don't know. Maybe they could have thrown it all out. But you're right. I don't know. It's it's a great point. Um, it's it's another reminder that like when like when George Edelman, like random dude number three billion and seventy whatever, rants about why the mother box isn't creative enough, it's like, well, we don't care. Like they don't care. Like they're gonna go with what is tried and true in the DC verse because that's what's in the source and that's more reliable than th- from a 
shareholder perspective than taking a risk on what some random guy or random filmmaker or even great filmmaker thinks might be more compelling. That's risky. So yeah, you go with the, you're absolutely right. That's what they always have to fight against is how do we do the things that everybody knows? It's like our, our core audience is going to know versus like, I'm sure there's a lot of people who are like, no, the mother box thing is, is critical to, you know, the, the thing, the storyline, the universe, the, and I, you know, I can appreciate that. It's just from my perspective as a slightly less informed viewer in terms of the backstory, there's just another, like you talked about Iron Man and stakes and stories. And I just am reminded of, I've, I really think Patty Chayefsky is one of the great screenwriters of all time. And I remember reading something he wrote once about where he was like, you don't need big stakes for there to be high stakes. Like he was great at writing really compelling stories about like a shopkeeper, like a single shopkeeper who is having trouble staying in business. It can become so compelling and interesting without there ever being life or death on the line. And I think that something that happens is this sort of disease of more where I'm not saying you need to make a Superman movie where it's all about just keeping the Daily Planet in business, <laughs> but I'm just saying that I would like, watch because right, but like print is dead. What are they going to do? Like, I mean, it's more like can you find a way to make a single event instead of constant cataclysmic universe shattering firing of the entire city into rubble? Can you find a way to make simple human things compelling? Because they try when they're like, well, it's about a relationship this guy has with his dad or his loss of his. But it's like, but that isn't really what we're talking about. What we're talking about is like story stakes that are small scale that become important. And I don't think the filmmakers get to choose because I think that the studios demand a certain level of moreness. Like we need massive action sequences and we need, but there, this is, these are the challenges that the filmmakers, like I read the other day, Emerald Fennel, who is nominated for an Oscar. I read, I saw that she's being circled for a DC film next, a character in the DC universe. And I saw a lot of outcry on Twitter that was just like, wow, it's, this is what happens. You make a really great, movie like she did that is a big deal and she's nominated for an Oscar and she's been a great TV writer for a while and she's she's a she's a rising talent in this industry and her reward a DC movie and I, and I think everybody's kind of like or at least a certain snob like for her this is great you know and it's, it's probably a big payday it's probably a stepping stone maybe she'll do great things with it I don't know but just from what we know from where we sit, it's a box in some ways. It's a challenge. We've written about it. We've talked about it when it came to Wonder Woman 1984 and and other filmmakers. Like We want studios in an ideal industry. Don't we want studios to go to her and be like, hey, what do you want to do? I mean, like we want to be in business with you. We want to see what your ideas are. We want to work on your next project. We want to help make your next project. Instead of saying, hey, we have all this IP. Here's this like superhero that a lot of people probably haven't even heard of, but like, we're going to make this movie. Do you want to do it? I just think that then she's going to be in the box of how quickly can she turn it around? How big can her set pieces be? How many cities can she level in the denouement? Like, you know, all that stuff. Do we know that that didn't happen? Did they come to her and say like, this was the film that they wanted her to do? Or did they come to her and say, 
I have no idea. No, I mean, I don't know. Maybe, maybe her age, maybe she told her agents, she was like, you know what I really want to do? There's this DC character I love that I want yeah. to make a movie about. Maybe. I'm not sure. Could be. I mean, I'm not saying that that isn't exactly how it goes. I'm not, I don't know the whole story. I just saw the reaction was like, ah, oh, man, in the internet verse, which of course we don't need to stress the value of internet reactions ever. But I'm just saying that there is, this is a bit of a pattern as that we know Patty Jenkins was like, these are some good, very talented rising filmmakers. I would like to see them get to make more like, what's Chloe Zhao going to do next? I hope not just a Marvel movie or a Star Wars movie. I hope something else that she came up with. I don't know. I'm mixed on that, right? Like, for, uh, famously, the guys who did um, Uncut Gems were offered a Marvel movie in past, which I respect. But I'm also not going to fault anybody for being for seeing that as an avenue to bigger things. I mean, Chris Nolan did little indies that were great, following his solid, and obviously Memento is phenomenal, and uh, even the Insomnia one is is fine. It's not as good as the original, but it's still pretty fun. Pacino's okay. And then he did DC movies and now he gets to do these weird ass blockbusters like Dunkirk, which you're like, you know, if that's a path, I don't think it's the world's worst path to getting autonomy in the industry to prove that you can handle a bigger thing. Um, I agree that it is frustrating that that, you know, in the 80s or 90s, you could totally go from like one amazing indie movie to a, a huge studio movie that doesn't have to be part of IP, but considering how rare it is studios touch stuff that isn't IP these days anyway, if going through an IP step is part of your journey, I'm not going to fault anybody for it. I think that's okay. I do not and fault I'm, the film. I just want to be clear. I agree. I do not fault the filmmakers. Like this is their opportunity. Like they should take what they should do whatever they want to do and, and take like, and if it's, yeah, I, I, see I, an I'm Emerald with- Fem- Fennel superhero movie. I think that'll be fascinating. Yeah, I do too. So here's why I don't and where I do depart a little bit is because I think the odds that it becomes an emerald fennel anything are slim. And I think the likelihood that it ends in the same kind of like, ooh, what is that weird movie? And like, where did her like how? Because I think the constraints are so intense, but maybe I'm wrong. Maybe that'll change. I don't know. Well, who has managed since Nolan? Who has managed to use genre as a stepping stone to a more independent career, right? Like famously, uh, Kugler, right? Uh, yeah, he's a good example. Um, yeah. I mean, more often than not, I feel like what you, you get a thing like uh, Ryan Johnson, where a lot of people love what he did and a lot of people hate it, but it was like a... Or um, Paul Feig did a Ghostbusters scene. Like, I think sometimes these very talented, unique voices get very boxed in by IP and the demands of the studio that, and the demands of the IP. And then we end up maybe unfairly criticizing them because their name is on it. And it's like, well, you know. I don't know. With Ryan Johnson, I think it's the fans that didn't. I think the studio let him do an amazing movie that I still love that the fans were like, Star Wars didn't fit into little Star Wars box. Angry. And I just alienated all of our listeners. Moving on to the Oscars. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, 
all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. The next thing we need to talk about this week, we are a little late to the game uh, after alienating all of our fan base to talk about the Oscars 2021 nominations. These are a historic Oscars for lots of reasons. First off, movie theaters weren't a thing last year. Certainly not during traditional Oscar season. Most Oscar movies are obviously released in the fall and winter so that they can maximize the marketing spend of their being marketed in December through February when the ceremony is. You know, you don't want to split up your marketing spend and try and push a movie in February one year and then February the next year. That, like, is is complicated. And so we have a very interesting round of nominees. An historic set of nominees and... We wrote about that on on the website, No Film School. But we also, in general, I think it's a really exciting turn of events. They have, how many years ago was Oscars so white, guys? Do you remember? Three years? Four years? I would have said three, question mark? I would have said 15. The last year feels like 20. (laughs) So since then, the Oscars have adapted, adjusted a little bit. They've expanded who is in the Academy. And lo and behold, we have had the most diverse class of nominees in history. There are two Asian American leading men nominated for best actor. There are two women nominated for best director. That's never happened before. There's a woman of color nominated for best director. Um, and that's just the beginning. It's it's all through the the nominations. This is a great thing for those artists. It's a great thing for those kinds of movies. It's a great thing for representation. It means that more people will know these movies exist and will see them and uh, that these these filmmakers and talents will get more work and their perspectives will be more. I, I mean, this is great. And it comes on the heels of an epic failure of the Golden Globes, which was always a bit of a joke. But the Hollywood foreign press had what was it? Zero. Charles, we talked about it a few. Zero. Weeks ago. Zero. Zero black members. Zero. Which they've now announced they're going to try and do something about, which like, okay, could could people try and do the right thing before they get in trouble? Like, is that possible? Can anyone just try and like not wait until they get publicly shamed to try and be better? Like, can't we just try and be better? Well, their whole thing is also a racket. Like, they're just, it's just a complete racket. But anyway, the the Oscars have done the right thing. They did it, they started doing it a while ago, and it shows. Six so years ago, I, I just looked great. it up. Oscars So White was 2015, six years ago. Oh, my God. Oh, my gosh. Wow. What do you guys think? What do you think, Michelle? Oh, gosh. The Golden Globes made me think. I will say one thing about the, what I'm looking forward to, maybe. What I think that the Emmys did right and the Golden Globes suffered a little bit was they tried to make the same show happen uh, as a broadcast, even though everything was different. Whereas I think the Emmys like shifted because they had to. And so I hope the Oscars finds that way where it doesn't feel like it's like pretending the pandemic doesn't exist and then trying to make a show like didn't work. And the the moment, the very first award where they muted um, Daniel Hallelujah, uh, right away at the Golden Globes, like was the tone for the entire rest of the Golden Globes night. So my hope is that they try and find something a little bit different because pretending to make it normal just feels like nothing is normal. So we'll see how that goes. It also is the first year we're seeing best sound or achievement in sound, I think is the name of the category this year, which is a combination of sound mixing and sound editing and they threw it together. Um, So I... I'm, I'm still so salty about that. 
Oh I yeah, I remember so revealing that to you, Charles, live in this podcast sometime earlier this guy last well, year. Well, so you know, there's been a big push among the colorist community to try and add a colorist, right? Yeah. Because it doesn't make any, you know, and one of the arguments has always been, well, sound editing is treated as different than sound mixing because they're two steps. So picture editing should be di- treated differently than picture mixing, which is what color grading is. And and people are like, well, but there's no, you know, well, like what about the DPs? Won't they be mad if the colorist? And it's like, well, you know, if you're a DP on a heavy VFX show, there's a VFX Academy Award. And on some of those big VFX shows on Life of Pi, so much of this, I mean, Claudia Miranda, amazing DP, but, and very involved in the VFX. So maybe Life of Pi is the wrong example, but like a lot of that image is being crafted by the VFX team and they still get an award for their work too. And a colorist is work and they craft the, you know, the same way a director and an editor collaborate on the edit, but the editor still gets credit for doing the edit. A DP and a colorist collaborate on the color grade, but a colorist deserves recognition for their work. It's crazy to me. We still don't have an Academy Award for color grading. And it's very frustrating for me that they're getting rid of technical categories when they should be looking at more technical categories. And it's especially frustrating in a time where, you know, representation is something we're all very conscious of. And, you know, there was that big, it seems like a million years ago now, but when Effie Brown, um, God bless you, Effie Brown, got in that fight with Matt Damon on Project Greenlight, where Matt Damon was like, actually, no, representation is just about people in front of the camera. And Effie Brown was like, what are you talking about? No, it also matters that people behind the camera, like we want as many categories that are deserved, right? Like we probably, I mean, fuck it. Actually, I, I was about to say we don't want an Academy Award for catering, but if catering was good enough, it deserves an Academy Award. But like we don't want, you know, uh, Academy Award for best, I don't know, whatever. Transportation. But we do want, I don't know, a good Teamster's worth their weight in gold. That's fair. Um, Sorry. Yes, you will, we'll, we're adding our own field yeah but like why are we removing categories when like this is another you know there are amazing i was just in a um just to to shout a thing i was just in a uh video on mashable they interviewed me about whether or not color grading is racist and like you know uh not the industry of hiring although i'm sure there's some racial bias there but whether or not like the hollywood shithole country look is racist which i think it is like when you when as soon as you're in the middle east it's like all orange and desaturated and I think there's like a racial undertone there that's fucking weird. Um, And like, you know, there are great talented African-American colorists. There are great talented African-American sound mixers and African-American sound editors and Asian-American and and female. And like, why are we cutting down the number of categories where we have the opportunity to award a diverse array of people when like those are two different jobs, sound editing and sound mixing. So we're going to make the award and just randomly it's going to be what, like three sound editors and two sound mixers compete. It just doesn't make any sense to me. Oscars, like, come on, let's let's reward the people who work on the job. I just think that we have to balance that the Oscars are are a pageant. Well, we don't have to balance it, but the interest in the actual technical achievements and the making of movies is very secondary to the pageant. (laughs) So, so I do agree. It would be nice to expand what gets that honor and and recognition in that major public way, maybe there's other ways that eventually we could recognize so many of the people who do the actual work. But you know, to like the average, you know, when when an actor wins an Oscar and the joke is they thank their agents and their managers and their blah, blah, blahs and their blah, blah, blahs, that's sort of like to the general public, this kind of eye roll. But to the people in the industry, it's kind of like, well, yeah, they're just trying to get the names of the people who make this 
all possible, like for them, you know, they're, they're, that's, that's a good thing to do, but it's kind of like, does the audience want to sit through the, the scroll of the credits at the end of the movie? Like most of them know. So I think that's kind of where the, uh, the Oscars meets this, this challenge of are people in general interested in, if you're trying to turn it into the Super Bowl as a TV event, are they interested in things like who who had the best craft deal a year? I am. I think that's cool. But I think that as far as like TV ratings and, and the show being three hours, like, you know, they always talk about how the show is too long and it's bloated and it's this. And it's like, well, if you're trying to actually recognize and honor everybody who's making movies, then maybe it needs to be longer. Yeah. And maybe you split it up and do more technical awards the day before. Or maybe you call it the Zack Snyder Oscars and then people will be okay with it being four hours. Academy Awards. And you let him direct it. Yeah. And it's a little desaturated. Yeah. ABC now or whatever. Whoever Disney Plus. Or or Peacock. Oh yeah. Peacock, yeah. Moving on to tech news. I I I don't cover a lot of plugins on tech news, but this one I liked and I wanted to cover, and I'm gonna cover more plugins because why not? But this one is from a company called AccuSonos. And if you don't know AccuSonos, AccuSonos makes audio plugins. So a plugin is like when you're working in post-production and you want to change something beyond the controls that come in your NLE, you can get a plugin that goes a little further. You know, the famous ones are always noise correction in picture like Magic Bullet Denoiser or Neat Video, um, both of which I, I, I own and love. And uh, they're great. Like Resolve has a built-in denoiser, but sometimes you need more. Uh, and in audio, you know, there's Isotope is the really famous ones, but AccuSonos is really coming along and AccuSonos' whole thing is simple interface. Like their whole thing with their plugins is like, are you tired of opening a plugin and there's like nine knobs and you don't know what they all do and you have to Google it every time because you only use it every three months. AccuSonos is like minimal knobs. Like most of their plugins have one knob. So you can like turn it up, turn it down. And like, frankly, I'm a a filmmaking professional who's worked in post for 15 years and I love this because sometimes I won't use a plugin for six months and I will forget what all of the knobs do. And I love that they're like, no, 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 we're going to make simple knobs even though you're a pro. And their newest plugin is called Mouth to Clicker. And uh, you can hear right now what Mouth to Clicker will do, which is like all of the all the like really glottal, guttural, mouthy noises that some speakers make. It'll just remove them automatically. And to be clear, this is something that's done in like almost all high-end movies is like part of the dialogue at it. Someone's going in and they're like hand editing out all of those like kind of things because they're gross. And this is a plugin that lets you do that automatically with a knob on like your little YouTube, not little, your YouTube videos, your student projects, all of that where you don't have the budget to hire a dialogue editor. This will also probably be really popular with podcasts. Maybe we will even use it on the No Film School podcast at some point in the future. But if you're if you're thinking about plugins, you should check out the new Mouth to Clicker, which is also a great name, Mouth to Clicker, from AccuSonos. It does what it it what it sounds like. That's pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, I think it would have been a more disgusting name, really. Like it could have been like the Mouth Desalivator, but like Click is like a nice clean. Like it could have, it could have been a much grosser, like the the tongue remover or something. Is this a standalone plugin, or is it? Can it be used in Final Cut Premiere? So it is for all of the big ones. Uh, so Final Cut Premiere, 
improved compatibility for Final Cut. I don't know what the issues were before, but Accusonos is is pretty cross-platform. So Media Composer, all of the big ones, and you can buy it standalone or you can buy it as part of their ERA bundle. Awesome. And then we've got a fun Ask No Film School. Stephen McDowell asks, I've got to upload some weight from my DJ Ronan S. Gimbal. I'm thinking, could I take the Ninja 5 I'm using to record raw video and wear it on my body? Has anyone ever tried this? Stephen McDowell. I love this question. I love nutty questions <laughs> like, like, can I do this? And believe it or not, Garrett Brown. When Garrett Brown was originally designing the Steadicam in the early 70s, his original idea for how video was going to work was a fiber optic cable from the camera to an eyepiece so that you would wear these like glasses with an eyepiece that's, that had a fiber optic image from the camera. Now, that didn't work out for Steadicam because it was the 70s and, and you know, they had another plan. But like from the beginning of like stabilizing cameras, many people have thought, I want to get as much weight as I can off the stabilization setup and move it to my body. So your idea of like, what if I just mounted the monitor to my body is not the world's worst idea. It's not the best though. And there's a couple of big reasons why. First off, either you're going to have to run a cable and that cable is going to be a nightmare. Like if you want raw video to your Ninja 5, you're going to have to run a cable. You can't run the raw video over like a wireless system, right? So that's going to be a big nightmare. Not the end of the world, but like the cable actually, it's going to catch all the time and it's going to affect your operating and it's going to affect your balance. So that won't work. Or you can do a wireless system. DJI has their own called RavenEye, which is ultra lightweight and mounts really easily on their own NS. And so you could do a wireless thing to something like that. But And that would be our recommendation. If you're going to do this, you want to do a wireless system of some sort and you're going to be much better off. The additional problem with people who've tried stuff like this in the past is it's actually really complicated to mount something to your body in a way where you can see it easily and also see where you are going. And the beauty of something like having using the monitor that's on your Ronin is you actually are watching where the camera is, which is usually sort of where you are walking. And that allows you to sort of move around safely, not bump into things, and most importantly, not bump the camera into things. Moving that monitor off so you're like watching your belly while the camera's out in space is a recipe for catching the camera on a mailbox or a C-stand or something. And it's also a recipe for like walking into a wall. So it's not something people do very often. It's definitely a setup like I know a bunch of people have tried. I, I think a better thing would just be focusing on a lighter weight setup for your overall package. Or you mentioned something like after 10 or 12 minutes, it starts to get really heavy. Most camera operators focus on doing gimbal shots and then putting the camera down as much as they possibly can. So like one thing you'll notice when you work with a big Steadicam op is even when the even when the sled is on an arm, they'll have like a, a, a an apple box or whatever. And whenever they're not doing a take, they'll like rest the sled on an apple box so they're not holding the weight. You only want to be holding the weight for the most important part of the shot, right? Like it, you know, a Ronin is not designed for like four hours of constantly wandering around operating. Right, you 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 rest it on an apple box or on a table or on your shoulder, and then you need to do the shot. You pick it up, you do the shot, you put it back down, and that's really the best way to save your back, rather than trying to figure out ways to make it easier to hold it for fifteen or twenty minutes. If you do need to hold it for fifteen or twenty minutes, like you're operating at a live event, you probably are ready to look at like a vest system, and have some sort of vest and arm system that you can use to really spread that weight around. I think that's going to treat you better 
than than just moving the Ninja Five your body. I don't think that's going to be enough weight savings, personally. Is there any danger to trying it? I mean, there's so much danger. Uh, it's you know, uh, <laughs> I mean, it's important to remember that like Steadicam's dangerous. I mean, there's. I remember the first time I was a Steadicam up for a while, and the guy who trained me was like, "Okay, and so this is the safety pull cord," and they designed it because one guy drowned because his Steadicam like he was on a helicopter and he fell off into the water and he couldn't swim because there was so much weight for the steady cam. So they put the safety cord in. So now if you need to let the steady cam go, you pull this cord and it rips the vest off your body with one go and you won't drown. And like, that was day one of steady cam training. So like, yeah, I mean, it's, it's dangerous. Like it is a, it is a physically heavy thing. You're strapped into your body and you are walking in a way where you can't pay attention. You're not, uh, the thing I always like to rem- remind everybody about filmmaking is you're doing things that feel really normal, but you're adding extra complication to it and that makes it more dangerous. So whenever people are like, well, why can't I have an actor drive? It's like, well, because they're also acting. Like, sure, they drive every day, but while they drive every day, they're not also pretending to be another person. And so... And making you know, eye contact that, with the person next to them that they're talking to. Exactly. <laughs> and, and, you know, and young my students are always like, well, yeah, but I drive and talk to my girlfriend or whatever. And I'm like, yeah just having a conversation, not pretending to be someone else remembering your lines and like, it makes it more dangerous. And so Steadicam is dangerous. Like, you know, I, I don't know any anecdotal stories of people walking off buildings, but I guarantee you people have walked backwards off of a step, right? Cause you're walking backwards, doing your Steadicam shot, paying attention to your shot. And that happens all the time with Ronin too. I mean, always work with a spotter, have someone behind you, hand on the back, watching where you're walking, like stay engaged with all that. Like, please don't, like, and like, I would, for me, strapping the monitor to my body would seem more dangerous, not less, because all of a sudden it's in this fixed position where I'm looking at it. Like I, I'm, I'm picturing like an arm coming out from my belly. So I'm like looking down at the monitor and up at the arm. And it just seems like a recipe for disaster to me. I don't have much to add so much as safety first. Yeah, no, I mean, I agree. I think, I think that anything you try to do, on your own that you, I think it's good that he's asking or the people are asking these kinds of questions because going out and just doing it and then getting hurt or breaking something yes. expensive would be pretty bad. So good to think it through before trying it. You can find me on the internet at charleshane.com and Twitter and Instagram at charleshane. This is Michelle Delator. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at M-D-E-L-A-T-E-U-R. Shout out to the Adaptarian who sent along a projector lens that I'm playing with that's really fun. So that was a great find and uh, playtime for me. Doing some writing as well. Get in touch if you'd like to chat. Good luck to your March Madness brackets, (laughs) which are all busts now, I'm sure. And March Madness is referring to the basketball tournament, but not to the Snyder Cut, uh, even though they're released (laughs) at the same time. It's good to be back. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being back, Michelle. I hope we can have you on more regularly. And I'm George Edelman, Editor-in-Chief at No Film School. You can find all the stories we talked about at more at nofilmschool.com. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, like, rate, and subscribe to the podcast. Let us know what you think of the Snyder Cut and all the things we talked about. Uh, We love to hear from you. Uh, Thanks so much. Later. Later.